My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. Our guest today is Brent Gleason, a Navy SEAL combat veteran, entrepreneur, and the founder of Taking Point Leadership, a leadership and management consulting firm where Brent speaks and coaches on topics ranging from building high-performance teams and elite cultures through to organizational transformation. He is also an award-winning business leader and was named a top 10 CEO by Entrepreneur Magazine. Brent writes weekly columns for Inc.com and Forbes.com, and he's also the best-selling author of Taking Point, a Navy SEAL's 10 fail-safe principles for leading through change, and his new book, which we're going to get into on this episode, Embrace the Suck, the Navy SEAL way to an extraordinary life. Brent, welcome to the show. Lawrence, thank you so much, brother. It's uh, great to be here with you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. I'll tell you what, I read Embrace the Suck, and it's got me, tell you what, it's got me motivated. It's got me inspired. Uh, there's definitely some, some stuff in there that I have taken now into account in my life. And, I, and I'm real, it, uh, there's two major themes that have hit me from the book. We'll get into it as we go. Other people will find different things, I'm sure, uh, in Embrace the Suck. But, um, you know, there are certainly some things that I've taken away that I'm going to actually apply to my life. So, first of all, it's a great book. Thanks for writing it. Thank you. Really, really appreciate it, man. So, let's set the scene with a quote from Embrace the Suck. In early 2007, I made a decision that carried a lifelong impact. I left a relatively lucrative job as a financial analyst with a global real estate development company to join the United States Navy. The objective, to successfully navigate what is arguably the most challenging special operations training and selection program in the world and become a Navy SEAL. Little did I know that the following months and years would change my perception of adversity forever. So, Brent, I mean, that's the opposite trajectory many in the teams take. Usually it's first SEALs, <laughs> first special operations, right? <laughs> Excel at a high level. Then, you know, you transition out and you become an entrepreneur. You enter the business world uh, and you make your way there. So tell us, your, it's a fascinating story. Tell us your journey to becoming a Navy SEAL. What inspired you to make such a radical change from the path you were already on. Uh, sure, uh, it, it's, it is kind of an interesting story, um, you know, for, for a few reasons. As a quick backstory, grew up in Dallas, Texas, did my undergrad education at Southern Methodist University, uh, earned degrees in finance and economics. I spent a little time at Oxford in England. Nobody should be impressed by that. I, my area of focus was drinking beer, so I don't really remember much of it, but I did come out of it with, uh, you know, <laughs> some value. Um, okay. And then I graduated and I took a job as a, a financial analyst with a global firm based out of downtown Dallas. Now, during that time, I had a close uh, friend of mine, a college buddy who was a year behind me in school. So he was now a senior. Now, he was, in fact, one of these young men who had a more or less lifelong dream, a, a passion and vision, a call to serve uh, to graduate, join the Navy, and at least, at least attempt to be accepted into the notorious SEAL training pipeline. 
Uh, now, based on your comments uh, earlier and comments from the book, uh, we might have branches around the world that would argue uh, the, uh, you know, whose training is the hardest. But for the context of this story, uh, I thought it was a very admirable path. Now, keep in mind, this was just pre-9-11. So I had graduated from college in 1999, uh, and I was working uh, in corporate America then on into 2000. And so... I wished him well, but soon thereafter, he and I started training together. I had played rugby in college uh, and he'd been an athlete. And so for me, it was just a, a way to stay fit, have an accountability partner and, you know, help a friend prepare for his arduous journey. Fair enough. And, uh, naturally, we started spending a lot of time together and having a lot of dialogue about the implications of uh, his joining and, and the program and, uh, you know, by the grace of God, if he became a SEAL, what, what that would uh, mean for his, his life and career as a young man. Obviously, that piqued my interest, so I started reading books about the history of the Naval Special Warfare Community and our forefathers and the underwater demolition teams in World War II and how we essentially cut our teeth as an elite assault force in Vietnam and the conflicts thereafter. And I really became enthralled by the, the mindset and the mental fortitude, the grit, the focus, the accountability and discipline, uh, not just in the individual, but how the Naval Special Warfare Community and the Special Operations Community as a whole creates high-performance teams, the culture, uh, the behavior, the rituals, and how they align a group of people behind a shared sense of purpose to achieve a desired result. And better than most organizations in the world, whether they be in combat or in business, it's, it's something that's very difficult to replicate outside of that very unique environment. And long story short, that growing fascination coupled with the somewhat boring nature of my entry-level financial analyst position mm -hmm. uh, led to the culmination of a decision to... Um, start taking a little bit of calculated risk and live a life of no regret. I probably say that more in hindsight than I did then. And I quit my job, much to my parents' dismay, because <laughs> I had never talked about being in the military at all. And my buddy, with whom I've been training, we moved, uh, we'd already trained for about a year together. And then we moved to a little town called Crested Butte, Colorado, where we trained for an additional six months at, at about 10 to 11,000 feet altitude. Uh, to get into uh, peak physical condition. And of course, training the body helps train the mind. And then in early 2000, joined the Navy and was uh, on a plane headed out here to sunny San Diego, California. So that was, that was the journey. So long story short, one of my college buddies talked me into it. <laughs> that is unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, I, I often speak with um, special operators, uh, SEALs, uh, Delta Force, Green Beret, I mean, you name it. Yeah. And I noticed you had my buddy, my buddy Dale on the show too. Love that guy. Oh, Dale. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Dale, Dale, you know, Dale is one of a kind. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Love Dale. <laughs> and, uh, you know, whenever you have these, these conversations with those that have accomplished what you've accomplished, their, you know, their story goes back to when they were kids about how they dreamed about being in the military or about an event that took place when they were very young mm -hmm. that triggered or caused them to, to seek this out as a calling. And, you know, your, your story is, is just absolutely fascinating because, you know, you, as you said, go home, tell your parents you're joining the Navy. Um, and it's like, what are you talking about? Um, right. So that's that, you know, that's real, that's really, so, when you were, I mean, when you were growing up at, at all, did you ever think about entering uh, the military or any of, you know, or any of the elite branches of the military? 
Sure, I thought about it. My, my dad had served as a, uh, a Marine during Vietnam, uh, you know, luckily didn't deploy downrange. Okay. Um, and, but never really talked about it, never pushed the military or military service on me or my twin brother. And uh, so it wasn't really a topic of conversation. It was my parents were happy that I was going down the path of business and finance and <laughs> just happy that I had a job. And it is interesting. And I'm sure we'll get more into this because I have so many friends and, and teammates and some of them are with us and some of, the, some of them aren't who did follow a, a similar path to what you said where it was a childhood vision uh, that they had for a long time. I, I now, uh, it's a rather informal program, but I now also mentor young guys into and through the BUDS program and through advanced That's training right. teams. And it, it's, you know, it's a way to continue to serve and to give back. And it, it's, it's really interesting to see who we have coming in now. And not that it's that different, but it is a bit different that we've been at war for 20 years. It's a different vision than those of us who went in right before 9-11. It was admittedly more of a personal challenge uh and, and yes a call to serve and and give back and and serve, serve in the military but not the same as we have now we have droves and droves of young men and women lining up out the door to serve in the military to serve in special operations and how amazingly admirable is that because we are at conflict we are at war still mm. and, and there's a good chance especially if you're going into one of the branches where you are the tip of the spear that you're going to see some level of conflict and i have the utmost respect for you know, our men and women who are serving and of course their families uh, who serve alongside them. So it, but it, but it, in the world of special operations, it, it, there's a large amount of diversity that people don't realize. They all think of the same, you know, uh, persona of, of special operators, but there's a large amount of diversity in the organization as far as where people came from, their cultural backgrounds, their financial background, their educational background. Um, some who have never seen the ocean before yet crush you in a two mile swim. It's, it's a wonderful social experiment, especially in the early days of training. <laughs> yeah, you know what? A absolutely. Uh, the stories that I have read, the people that I've spoken with, as you just described, come from just an incredible uh, uh, matrix, tableau of uh, various backgrounds and upbringings and, you know, uh, just completely different cultures. Uh it, it really is amazing who ends up making it because it, it, it really is not what you expect for many uh, who gets in and who doesn't. And in your right. book, you talk, you know, you talk about, I think one of the m major ingredients of whether or not you make it in special operations, whether it be the Navy SEALs or any of the other uh, uh, in the special operations forces community. Um, and that is, you talk in this book, one of the big themes for me was resilience. And you say in the book, you say, this is a book about resilience. So what I, what I'd love to maybe kick off with here is, uh, what, so what is it that inspired you to write embrace the suck? Sure. Uh, you know, I want to first say that, you know, my my contribution as it relates to the world of special operations, like literally pales in comparison to, to so many. I literally have you know, guys and former teammates who put me through training I've been to war with and they're still serving in the SEAL teams. <laughs> so <laughs> it, so I, I want to just humbly say that, that as a caveat that, 
you know, my contribution, uh, you know, really comes from pulling from the, the leadership and culture principles that we learn, those experiences in not just the training, but obviously in, you know, combat deployments and things like that and how we can apply those in uh, and learn from those things in the civilian world or in the business world or just in a personal development standpoint. Um, but uh, it, it's really, it's interesting to see how, uh, how those things uh, apply. I want to make sure I'm answering your question, uh, you know, correctly. Can you, can you restate just the, the first yeah, part? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. For, for me, the, the book is highly inspirational with, with incredible advice. Um, and it, it's, it's a little bit different or fairly different from your first book. And right. that was intentional. <laughs> that was intentional. And, and so I, I'm really interested in understanding what was the motivation for you sure. to write this book. It, the, the, you know, the first book taking point is it's more of a business book and it was by design. It's really the foundation of my company's principles when it comes to organizational transformation, leading change, culture, leadership, those types of things. And essentially it's more of a writing a thesis on, you know, change management in the modern world uh, mm -hmm. with some, some draws from the world of special operations. But then when interacting with the clients that we do from medium sized to enterprise fortune 100 companies all over the world from a leadership and organizational development standpoint, we, we all know that you can't enhance the, the desired outcomes and results of a team without enhancing the rituals, behaviors, values, and, uh, and actions of the individuals on the team. You can't get you know, better engagement and better outcomes without better leadership and leadership really is all about personal development. It's about personal transformation and being in a constant state of improvement, being a lifelong learner. And so there's a there's a, a theme there, obviously, that I have become fascinated with in studying the art of uh, personal development, emotional intelligence. Uh, you know how we can apply you know, continual lessons learned to not just enhancing uh, our own motivation, but more importantly, from a leadership standpoint, how we motivate, inspire, and engage uh, those that we're meant to lead. And that could be in a business setting, could be in the military, it could be in your family. Uh, we all have the opportunity to lead uh, in, in any aspect, whether it's leading ourselves or leading others or through a peer-to-peer -peer type of uh, situation. And so I said, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's an interesting project that's more in the self-help, self personal development genre, so to speak. And that I was ready to you know, possibly write another book. And I had never read a book that technically falls in the self-help genre so i was like well maybe i should probably i should probably see what's out there and see what i connect with see what i don't connect with and see what's popular uh, the self-help space self-improvement space is like a multi-billion dollar organization from books to podcasts to other types of content technology and so it, i wanted to uh, i wanted this to be a fun project i wanted to be serious in a way too now admittedly going into writing the book I didn't realize 2020 was going to suck so bad. So selfishly, right. the timing of the book, in all seriousness, um, worked out well because I really do want this book to be a source of inspiration, of motivation, and more importantly, of action. And so when I was doing the research for this, uh, I, mean, I ordered all kinds of books and started reading through all these. And obviously, books that have sold hundreds of thousands of copies or millions of copies or, or not many copies, uh, there's a com some common themes around, you know, you know, no offense, but a lot of fluff, uh, a lot of uh, happy talk and a lot of, you know, believe in yourself kind of kind of content. Uh, and then other books that I thought were really cool and counterintuitive and creative. Like I love Mark Manson's work with uh, his book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Uh, mm -hmm. his second book, um, Everything is F. I love the subtitle. 
a book about hope. <laughs> but again, also the way I think and the way of you know many of your viewer listeners think, especially with the military background, we think about action, we think about planning, we think about execution. All this is great, but if there's no action plan, there's no way to execute, who cares? It's not gonna really impact me, my life, or my team, or my family. So I thought, well, maybe we can take some you know, learning, maybe we can apply some of the you know, special operations philosophies to it, of course. But more importantly, let's, let's make sure that there's actionable content in there. That's why I put a mental model uh, in each chapter. So it was really inspired by a lot of the work we do in the company with developing leaders and people. Um, and then the more research I did, I, I got excited about the possibility of a more of a personal transformation book. And then uh, interestingly, based on the timing, like I said before, during my second, second pass and final pass edits, I actually had the opportunity uh, last year uh, to go back and make, make some loose references to the pandemic and to our current situation, because the content, of course, is meant to be timeless, but we are in historical times that we're going to be talking about and feeling the ripple effects of for many, many years to come. So uh, I, I didn't uh, think that was inappropriate to make some references to you know, a global pandemic, hypothetically speaking, or you know, some of the social and political unrest and financial and economic uncertainty. So it... Uh, it, it kind of came together nicely and we've been very blessed. We've done phenomenal reviews and um, so far so good. You're very candid uh, in this book about your, your, your history, uh, your background, and uh, certainly some of your, some of the um, uh, experiences and incidents that uh, you faced uh, both before and while you were in the seals. And uh, you know, it, it, it really touches on, again, as you say, this, this concept of resilience. Uh, and resilience takes many forms, but you say that, here's a quote, resilience presents a challenge for many psychologists. Whether you can be said to have it or not largely depends not on any particular psychological test, but on the way your life unfolds. If you're lucky or unlucky, enough to never experience any sort of adversity, you won't know how resilient you are. It's only when you're faced with obstacles, stress, and other environmental threats that resilience or the lack of it emerges. Do you succumb or do you surmount? So Brent, the, the difference today is that there are many who grow up facing zero resistance in their lives. Uh, Right. Humans used to face adversity daily, but but now we live, at least in the West, uh, yeah. in an overly protected, automated pop culture bubble. Right. Where and, and prosperity seems to be a double edged sword. Uh, and, you know, now we've we've gone through a pandemic uh, and a lot of people are experiencing things that, you know, certain types of hardships that they've never even contemplated. Right. Uh, so, you know. Curious as to your thoughts on, you talk about if you're, if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough to never experience any sort of adversity. I, I think it's a very strange time in history because there are so many out there who haven't had the chance to flex that muscle. It, it, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll, I'll kind of first kind of bring it back to uh, the philosophies around SEAL training and then segue into our current environment, you know, with the past 10 months of what we've all been dealing with. Uh, the Naval Special Warfare community has actually invested millions of dollars and years of research to identify the, the mental, emotional, cognitive, and physical attributes of students more likely to 
you know, navigate our sales, our, our training pipeline. Think about a sales funnel. We've got to have better leads in the top of the funnel so we can close more deals and graduate more guys so we can grow the ranks of the SEAL teams. Um, and the, the data doesn't reflect the narrative that many would, would think of, uh, of, you know, you know, extreme athletes and, you know, high academic achievers. And while obviously intellect and, and fitness are critical, you won't even get in uh, without some baseline of that. But uh, the, you know, the data actually reflects more of the less measurable points around, you know, resilience, grit, and more, most importantly, a deep passion and emotional connection to service. And not just in this context, not just service of the military, but service as a special operator, service yeah. as a SEAL. And it just like in any walk of life, whether it's a personal goal, professional goal, you know this as well as anyone else, it's that passion and that emotional connection that helps you successfully navigate the inevitable obstacles, the anxiety, the stress, you know, the suffering that comes with any good goal. You know, if it doesn't have those elements, it's probably not that big of a goal. <laughs> you should probably rethink right. what you're doing. If it doesn't have some of those elements, it's probably not worth pursuing, in my opinion. Um, and, and so it's interesting to see how passion, you know, I call it the three P's in the book, passion, purpose, and persistence. And especially you know, persistence is a given one uh, in any walk of life of achieving whatever we want to when it comes to you know, work, family life, you know, philanthropy, giving back, whatever, what have you. But, um, but, but purpose and, and passion are really those two uh, interesting points that and you can experience in the training pipeline. I experience it with uh, the guys that I mentor. They are so focused and so passionate that they put appropriate constraints on themselves. They limit temptation. They maintain total focus. They eliminate everything from their life that is going to stand in the way of achieving that goal, yet not at the expense of other people or hurting others. Uh, they do it on an on a appropriate set of values because, um, you know, when I say that, it sounds like context, well, I'll just I'll step on any head to get to achieving a goal. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying within the confines of, of really good values and not hurting anyone else, but, you know, eliminating the people from your life that are standing in your way, the people that don't wish you well, eliminating all the distractions and shiny objects and opportunities that don't really associate with what you're trying to achieve. And, you know, taking those principles and bringing it to a, a current environment right now, and we've been working a lot with a lot of large organizations, you know, the Googles and NFLs of the world, who you think, well, they've got this dialed in They're They're used to change. Well, right. nobody had COVID on their contingency plan when they went into 2020. <laughs> I know we didn't. <laughs> I, you know, our, our, our 2020 projections got shot to hell in, in March. And just like, like every other organization out there, we've, we've had to pivot radically and adopt digital transformation and, and, you know, and new tech, technology and all these things that, quite frankly, made many people, including us and myself, a little uncomfortable. We, we've been talking about those things, but yeah, we'll, we'll do that later when we really need to. And this forced a lot of people and organizations down a path of innovation and creativity. That's, that's one thing that's interesting about adversity. And, and when you think about the, the core fundamentals of resilience is that you can really look at it from a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. That could be within a team or an individual. Right. Fixed mindset is, well, I am who I am. My skills are what they are. My shortcomings are what they are. Effort, not really that important because I can't change what I am. I can't change the goals I will or will not achieve. And so you're kind of in a stagnant situation within your mind of how you approach life and work. Whereas a growth mindset is the bedrock of resilience. You don't just see challenges as, okay, they're acceptable. You crave challenges. You see setbacks as integral, as an integral part of growth and development of insight and wisdom and, and, and success. And uh, you crave transparent feedback from peers and colleagues, and you're in a, you want to be in a constant state of improvement. 
and the people and organizations who have been navigating this, this current environment of global pandemic and civil, social, and political unrest and financial and economic uncertainty, they pivoted very quickly. And they, they have, you know, the, the book really and the philosophy around Embrace the Suck is having that ability to not just accept adversity, but lean into it and move more quickly from that bunker of human emotion when adversity strikes of surprise, anger, depression, <laughs> you know, the, the grieving stages more quickly into action-oriented execution, taking stock of your current situation, focusing on what's in your control, developing a plan and stepping back onto the battlefield of life. Excellent. I'm actually going to come back to that in a moment because there's, there's something I want to explore with you, but before we, before we poke on that a little bit, um, as the founder of uh, Taking Point Leadership, you, you partner with clients on organizational development initiatives, uh, leadership uh, development, and you help them create cultures of high performance. In the book, uh, you break down the, the definition of resilience into three categories. And you know, I, I think if you're if you're talking about leadership development, if you're talking about organizational development, um, you cannot get away, from, especially with what you just said, you cannot get away from this idea of having to be resilient. Your leaders have to be resilient. Your culture has to be resilient. Your people have to be resilient. Yeah. And so in the work that you do with Taking Point, and, you know, again, in, in the book, you kind of outline breaking it down further, breaking down resilience into, you, you, you mentioned the three Ps, but you've also got the three Cs. Right? <laughs> so um, it, if you can break down the three Cs and then yeah. maybe comment on, uh, you know, the first two, and then I'll, I'll, I'll take off on one of them. Sure. There, you know, challenge, commitment, and control. So challenge goes back to what I was talking about around the philosophy of a growth mindset, that growth that, that can exist within an individual. Uh, and it definitely must exist within the majority of individuals, especially leaders in a team environment okay. where you see challenges as not just acceptable, uh, you welcome them, you expect them, you have contingency plans, and also you have the resources, mindset, and, and, <clears throat> and things at your disposal to course correct on that battlefield. Again, whether it be in business or a literal battlefield or just your personal life, uh, there's, that's why preparation far exceeds the importance of planning. Uh, when it comes to the challenges we face, we teach our clients to have an 80% plan because there is no such thing as a 100% plan. It doesn't exist. By the time okay. you think you're there, the battlefield's changed and you got to go back and change your plan. And so, and then commitment. Uh, resilient people have a deep emotional connection and commitment to the goals they're trying to achieve. Uh, going back to, you know, whether it's the, the bud student or uh, the young professional who has a, a dream of becoming a CEO one day or a philanthropist uh, who is really committed to the cause that they support or the cause that they began and started, you're pouring all of your emotion, time, and energy uh, into achieving that goal. And oftentimes uh, for a cause greater than yourself, typically, and this isn't just my opinion, but research shows that whatever you do in your professional life, either it's a, a for-profit, a nonprofit, or military service, when you have that connection to something that's bigger than you, then you're, you're going to go all in. Uh, and, and you're going to find, and you're, that's going to drive you to navigate uh, some of those roadblocks and obstacles. And then control goes into uh, the variance between 
people who people in teams who spend so much time, energy, and emotion on things that are wildly outside of our control, as opposed to focusing on things that we have control over and can impact, things that are within our sphere of influence. Um, you know, my buddy, very close friend of mine, uh, Mark Owen. It's not his real name, obviously. It's a pseudonym. Wrote No Easy Day. Yes. No Hero. Yes. Phenomenal entrepreneur, and he's done great things. Um, I'm an ordained minister, by the way. I married him and his wife. <laughs> so what am I saying? <laughs> what? Okay, it's that's actually, a that's, that's a segue. Boom! You just okay. You know, I did it online while I was feeding the baby. It took like eight minutes. And then um, you mar- but, and then you married Mark Owen and his wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife was like, "You really spent forty dollars getting the plaque?" I'm like, "You're damn right, I did." It's hanging wow. in my office. Anyways. Um, he calls it staying in your three foot world. He tells this interesting story about when his it's a great father, story, please tell it. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a really, really fascinating story. Very simple, but it, it sets that tone of that lesson of focus on what's in your control and sphere of influence. Don't ignore the rest because you want to maintain situational awareness, but deprioritize it, put it over to the side, keep an eye on it in your peripheral. So he and uh, some, some guys from his squadron at, at um, our, you know, tier one uh, special mission unit, uh, organization within an SW, um, they're on our, you know, a lead climber uh, course. Lead climber, for those who don't know, is you're, you're, it's a rock climbing course, but you're learning to be the lead climber, meaning when you're climbing up a high face, uh, using ropes and protection, you're the lead climber. So you're setting protection. You climb 20 feet up to set the next protection. And if you fall, you're going to fall 40 feet, <laughs> not 20 feet until the rope catches you. I grew up rock climbing. So I kind of, you know, okay. go with this story. And he was up high on the rock face, about 20, 30 feet above his last piece of protection and frozen on the rock. Of course, the guys like started to, you know, make fun of him and stuff like that. And instructor shimmies up the face and legend has it that he free climbed up there. And that's why I love Alex, an old story that I share in the book about free climber, free climbers, meaning no ropes. Basically, he went up there. He's like, what's up, bro? What are you doing? What's wrong? And, you know, he couldn't, those who climb or have attempted to climb, you, you, you have to really trust your footholds. You have to trust your holds your handholds and, and really be looking for the next move. So it's, there's, you're trying to think two or three moves ahead. And uh, this is outside of Las Vegas. He was looking at the Las Vegas skyline. He was looking down at the guys and the guy was like, Hey, Hey, stop, stop right here. People in Las Vegas can't help you. Those guys down there surely aren't going to help you stay in your three foot world. Meaning this is my span of influence. This is what I control. Focus on what's right here and don't worry about the rest right now. Focus only on that. And that really goes into another one of the core components of resilience is, uh, and again, this is research-based, not just my opinion, but people who are uh, more resilient and exhibit more uh, grit and mental fortitude in their personal and professional lives, what have you, have a tendency to focus more on what, what they can impact. And, and because they do, they achieve or exceed more of the goals they set, they navigate change faster, uh, they bounce back more quickly, and therefore they're more confident. And that continues to develop and grow as they navigate, you know, sort of the murky waters of, of life. And therefore, they, they continue to be intentional in the expansion of their comfort zone. I, I think that that is and that's the one I wanted to comment on. I'm glad you told the story um, that, uh, you know, that Mark Owen uh, had, uh, you know, that you de- that you detail in the book about him climbing the rock face, uh, because that I think is such a powerful piece of advice for so many. Uh, and discussing that in the book as something significant, it's, it's very significant, right? This well, it's, idea- it's, ti- it's timely now too, because of so much in the world right now, we can't control. 
Exactly. Exactly. And you say, yeah. you know, you say here in the book, failure can result in us focusing primarily on the cause of our current adversity. We look backward instead of forward, you say, right? right. We focus on the elements we have no control over as opposed to developing an action plan and leveraging what is in our control. Right. And, and, and that's really the foundation of, of mission planning when you think about it. Obviously, on any battlefield, there's elements in your control. There's elements out of your control. You develop contingencies for what you think might occur. And then you have the what ifs of things that you don't even know, you know what could be coming down the pipe and, and stand in your way of achieving that goal or completing that mission. So it's important to not just take stock of your resources and what's in your control, but also understand threats, blockages, uh, and uh, the other obstacles that, that you may face and, you know, have a, have a little bit of a mindset that there's probably something on that list that, that, that you haven't thought of because that is the that is the bedrock of Murphy's Law. Fantastic. So, okay, I'm going to I'm going to give a uh, another quote here from you in the book. Uh, so later, in an effort to continue my service and give back to the naval special warfare community, I mentored and you mentioned this earlier. Um, I mentor young people through the SEAL program. When I first began mentoring these eager and determined young men, the questions were the same ones I had when I was in their shoes. What's the hardest part? How did you get through it? Is it more mental or physical? What's the best way to train for this program? Before investing my limited time in being a mentor and knowing most of these young men might fail in their attempt, I needed a process for selecting candidates. This is very interesting. You say, I had to uncover the answers to a few key questions. Which of these guys have the grit to get it done? How do I determine who has the appropriate level of, resi of resilience? So my question is, why do some spend years preparing only to quit on day one while others crush the training with a smile on their face? That's it's actually your question, sorry, yeah. um, in the book. So what I'm, what I'm wondering is, um, you know, it, it, it's so interesting. So there's a selection process before you ever get to the selection process. You've got a selection process for who you're <laughs> going to mentor and then they'll get selected. Um, how did you answer those questions? You know, the, you know, that question that you just posed there. Why do you why do some spend years preparing only to quit on day one while others crush the training with a smile on their face? How did you answer these questions and what yeah. did you find out? I think I answer these questions uh, along the way. So in hindsight, I was very wise in my selection process, but uh, really, uh, I, I just, but it, uh, I'll, give, I'll give three examples of okay. young guys I mentored all like you know, close friends of mine. I mean, they're like, they're like family. They, I make them babysit my children. <laughs> Payback. <laughs> Payback. Um, the, the, for example, the, I'll use these stories, quick stories, an example to, to help answer the question. The first, uh, you know, the first young guy I mentored, um, excuse me, not the first, but one of the first, uh, was the only one I've ever mentored uh, who came out of high school. The other guys have been uh, officers. And okay. uh, so kind of a different context. Uh, and, you know, one, for example, uh, comes from a billionaire family from Texas, uh, has everything at his disposal. Uh, I met him at uh, one of our SEAL Family Foundation charity events in New York, one of our big annual galas. And uh, we had brought his, his father out and he brought his son and his son was about to graduate from the University of Texas and was going to join the Marine Corps. And I said, well, let, me talk, let me talk to this young man. <laughs> no offense to the Marine Corps, but I had other, other initiatives. 
And so we, we, he segued over and uh, I you know, worked with him and trained with him. Uh, not that he needed it necessarily, but it was, it was a good way to just spend time together, talk about the, the culture of the, of the teams and, and just have an accountability partner. So I trained with him and um, which was a bit of a challenge because he was you know, 23 years old and I was a little bit older. <laughs> so I had to get in shape before I trained with him. <laughs> so it was good for me too. It's great. So, so put back to the sectors, you know, crush buds, officer uh, j- literally just retired out of the teams phenomenal career and now he's in uh, you know back in the world of finance in, in new york now this other kid who reached out to me uh, so kind of a, that was one trajectory this other kid who reached out to me starting when he was i believe a sophomore in high school reached out wow. through one of the social media channels and reached out to, to me and mark owen and a few others and it, it was interesting because of his tenacity which i got he was young and he was excited and but I made it out of respect for his time and my time. I made it clear that it's not much I could really do for him when he's living in East Texas and I'm out here in San Diego and uh, he's a sophomore in high school. So he's got, if he was going to go in right out of, out of high school, which uh, our candidates right out of high school have a much lower uh, success rate just because a little bit too young, not enough emotional maturity, not enough life experience. Um, those are some of the you know, research we've done, just my opinion what, from what I've seen is that just lower success rate for the younger guys. Um, and, you know, we periodically, you know, would chat or, you know, send messages through social media. And then I forget what, what happened in between, but I remember I just got home from the office one day and I got a text message from this guy. He said, just checked into buds. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'd heard from him in probably six months to a year. Well, just whoa. Checked into buds. I was like, Oh my gosh. I was like, I was like, what are you doing on Saturday? Come over to the house. And it's been a speeding freight train for him ever since. Like he is, he, he far more disciplined and focused, no offense to the other guys, than the officers <laughs> that I mentored. Younger, but far more disciplined that going back to what we talked about, that emotional connection, that deep passion to eliminate everything in his life. It has nothing to do with achieving that goal. All he wants to do is be a tier one special operator, not just an operator, but a tier one special operator. He's a, he's a good Christian boy from, from East Texas who cares so he cares deeply about country, family, and all he does is study his, his craft and, and, and stay fit and just, and he just turns and burns. And, uh, and then another one that I, that I touched on briefly in the book, another different situation, a young kid who grew up uh, out here in Rancho Santa Fe where, where, where I live and uh, my wife met his wife at a, uh, or excuse me, my wife at his mom at a charity event. And they came up and she said, well, you know, my son, he's, uh, uh, he just joined the Navy, similar trajectory to mine, he graduated from University of Miami, was working in finance uh, out in Florida, right. and then decided that he wanted to do something different. And uh, his mom passed away a week before he started BUDS uh, of, of a brain aneurysm in a, in a, in a car in, in Manhattan, out of nowhere. Uh, on a, a ladies' trip to Manhattan for the weekend, mm. uh, and he persevered. He um, he got rolled a couple times. Uh, I had some. Luckily, I had some of my friends and former teammates who are first phase instructors, so I got to kind of keep tabs on him, just like a parent would, um, which actually annoys most of the instructors. But uh, uh, and, and you know, he's he, and now he's now he's a you know graduated. Now he's an operator. So, but between those three different wildly uh, different scenarios, you mm-hmm. see the types of areas they come. And so when it comes back to resilience, uh, you think about the difference between me and my background and David Goggins, who wrote the forward, 
They're same class together, same boat crew, wildly different upbringings. I mean, David grew up with, uh, you know, racism and uh, an emotionally and physically abusive household, childhood obesity, learning disabilities, just constant volatility. Whereas I, I didn't grow up with any of that. Mm. You know, I, I grew up in a upper middle class family in Dallas, Texas. I went to private school my whole life. I, you know, it's, I've never been fired from a job or experienced abuse emotionally or physically. And so that's, what's kind of interesting about the, the philosophy and, and the principles around resilience and mental fortitude is where does it come from? It doesn't necessarily come from a life of hardship. It doesn't necessarily come from the opposite of that or, or somewhere in between it, It's, there's something innate within all of us. And I believe everyone has this ability. If you tap into it in the right way to be intentional in how we develop resilience by the choices we make. That's good news. Um, that's really good news because that was my thought uh, in what I mentioned before when I was talking about how there's so little adversity today, uh, typically, uh, that many, you know, many growing up don't have so many of the challenges we would have faced up even a hundred years ago. Right. And it 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 on the surface, it appears that you would have to have the background of a David Goggins to become sure. David, to become David Goggins. Right. Um, so what you know, most of us don't want to be David Goggins. <laughs> <laughs> I say that with love. I'm just saying <laughs> that sounds very painful to me. <laughs> it, it's, it is very, very painful. Uh, I know one of my, one of our other classmates uh, who's now an FBI special agent and was a SEAL for many years. And we're talking about David Goggins is 40% role. You know, when, yeah. when your brain's telling you you're done, you're only 40% of the way there. And my buddy was like, you tell David that I am perfectly happy with my 40%. <laughs> That's ah. <laughs> Absolutely one of a kind individual. Um, okay. So go back to the book, a quote here. Um, and this is a bit more introspective. So I shifted to the left across the doorway, scanning as much of the room as I could before entering. I moved to the side of the entrance and waited for the shoulder squeeze that signaled that a teammate was ready to move in with me. But there was no squeeze. Everyone was dealing with other threats. And then a man emerged from the darkness with an AK-47 pointed right at me. From the doorway, I took immediate action, placing two rounds in the center of his chest, followed by one at the base of his nose. His momentum carried him as he fell to the ground at my feet. I flipped my night vision goggles up onto my helmet and looked down. His bottom jaw was severe, was severed completely. He couldn't have been more than 19. What the F, you stupid SOB. I was livid. Why did he have to force my hand? Back at base later that night, I buried my face in my pillow, consumed with pain and confusion. I reflected on the early stages of my SEAL training, how horrific it was and how much resilience I needed to navigate the physical and emotional challenges we faced each day. So, Brent, I mean, you know, that's, you know, that's a uh, pretty powerful paragraph there that you describe in the book. Uh, and we talk about resilience, talk about the three P's, the three C's. And for most of us, it's, it's, that stuff is just about accomplishing goals in life and business. But for you, for you and other special operators, I mean, your goal is going into combat. And here we are talking about navigating the challenges 
not of business, but of life and death, both your own and the teammates you're responsible for on a daily basis. And of course, when it comes to killing the enemy, what I'm curious about is does the training you receive prepare you for the significant emotional challenges of being the arbiter of life and death in the moment that you describe there? I mean, how does resilience factor in uh, dealing yeah. with the psychological weight of, of it all? Yeah, it's a good question. There's there's certain elements of training, obviously, that help you prepare relentlessly for success on the battlefield on an op. And, you know, we we train relentlessly. People assume we're downrange fighting the enemy all the time. 75% of the time, we're somewhere training. And then when you're on deployment, uh, if you're not eating, sleeping, or operating, you're training. You're, you're working out. You're on the shooting range. You're rehearsing ops. You're rehearsing close quarters combat skills. You're in a constant state of training, evolution, and, and studying intel reports and lessons learned from the battlefield and, and using that to, to adapt our, our tactics and strategies. But obviously, when we talk about resilience and on literal and figurative battlefields, there are certain elements of life that we face that there's nothing that's going to train you for that. Uh, obviously, there'll be certain baseline uh, psychological traits and and um, uh, and things that help you help you or don't <laughs> navigate uh, the unexpected. Now, obviously, going into situations like that, you know that uh, those types of scenarios could be inevitable. You don't wish for them, uh, mm -hmm. but you know that uh, it, it's war, it's combat, and uh, especially you know that story is from you know a, a first deployment, you know, the new guy, and um, you know we were uh, some of the first seals in Iraq in 2003, and kind of not rewriting the book on urban combat and close quarters battle, but uh, essentially figuring out what works, what doesn't, and using shitty intel sometimes, not always, no offense to our agency partners, but when you're moving at the speed of war with limited, limited infrastructure and you've got a network of resources to, to gain intel from or you're you know, compensating people for that intel, uh, you're going to get uh, a big variance between quality <laughs> intelligence and intelligence that not in that situation, the, 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 the target was nothing like the source had described. Um, we didn't know, you know, how many you know, enemy were going to be on target or how big it was going to be. We came in a little thin. And, uh, and of course, on a lot of these targets, as all special operators know, you're, you have multi-generations of people on there. It's not just the bad guys. You've got children, grandchildren, grandparents great-grandparents, you have usually a few combatants mixed with many non-combatants. Mm -hmm. um, why you have to be careful and thoughtful in how you engage on those targets. You have to be able to dial it up and dial it down real fast. You know, I've been in situations where you're breaching the door, you know, non-combatants are injured from the explosive breach. And one minute you're in a gunfight, two minutes later, you're, you know, I'm carrying two four-year-old girls who are barefoot across the room because there's glass everywhere. You know, it's, it's a weird uh, emotional roller coaster that all you know special operators experience you know on ops like that <clears throat> again you know my contribution pales you know i don't I, I can't imagine what it's like to have been guys like mark or other similar operators from you know, seals or delta or marines uh, or air force who've done 13 combat deployments 14 combat deployments can't even, can't even fathom that so compounding what i've experienced with with that type of magnitude uh it's it's challenging, and that's why it's challenging for, um, you know, for operators, you know, when they transition or even when they're still active duty. You know, oftentimes, not to segue too far down this path, when we think about, you know, the, the, the effects of post-traumatic stress, well, 
for career operators, they're experiencing post-traumatic stress while they're operating. It's not like some thing you get when you retire. Right. <laughs> so, right. Granted, you know, studies show that those, a lot of those symptoms um, and effects of post-traumatic stress can, can emerge 10 years after your last sort of tra traumatic experience. Sometimes it's quicker. Um, but again, if, let's say you're a 20 year operator, well, those you're, you're navigating the challenges of that uh, while you're doing the same job. And, you know, as you know, we have, you know, suicide rate now is, you know, it's like it's never been before. We're losing 20 to 22 military veterans a day. It's One thing on a, on a lighter note though, that we've seen that's positive is a shift in the culture and, and the attitude and mindset around being more um, open about how we address it. Not just as an organization, when we think about, you know, resilience practices and emotional health, uh, and, and guys seeking treatment for TBI and for these other things, as opposed to, well, we don't talk about that. That's, you know, that's, that's weakness. You know, PTSD is not a real thing. I've heard guys literally say that. Some guys that I've served with, they like, really? say well, that's a thing. I'm like, that's a thing. <laughs> I don't know why someone would say that, but point is we are seeing a big paradigm shift in the culture of the military and, and in the special operations community where guys are being more open about it. They're being, frankly, more responsible in how they proactively um, help to mend their own mental health. Because if you want to, especially if you want to transition and have a successful career, a successful marriage or relationship, be a great dad, it's on you, unfortunately, and your peers and people you lean on to, to go get help and get it on a regular basis. Not just go talk to someone once or go through your decompression training, training and that that's great, but that's not going to help people who really need significant, um, uh, transformation when it comes to, especially the impacts, like I said, of TBI. It's not just psychological thing. That's, that's your brain being injured <laughs> and has all these different impacts. So I, I'm saying that in the context of resilience and one of the other core components of resilience is, is being thoughtful and intentional and in how we, how we help heal ourselves. The book Embrace the Suck is not meant to be wrapped in this macho uh, type of philosophy. It's about proper suffering practices and, and grieving in an appropriate way mm -hmm. and navigating all those different complexities of life and, and work, uh, you know, with, with health in mind, not with, you know, the macho attitude of, well, I just got to suck it up. That's kind of the counterintuitive approach to the, to the, the title of the book and, the, and, and the, the content itself is, as you've seen is, you know, it's not about teaching people to become SEALs. It's about drawing from some of those practices to live a healthier, more meaningful, purpose-driven life. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, I think a very stark uh, reality in the book, you mentioned how many have died from, you know, from suicide. Um, I think the number was 45,000, um, I believe, which is, a, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievably staggering number. And it's, you know, it's great to hear uh, that the culture is changing. Uh, you know, I've had a number of conversations with guys who um, have, uh, have gone through uh, therapy and, and, you know, yeah. they recognize, P, you know, PTS or PTSD, uh, and how, and how critical it is that operators that need help get help. And, uh, a lot of them are, uh, are, are setting up Tom Satterley, for instance, Delta force operator, um, him, him and his wife, Jen Satterley have set up uh, a foundation. So there's a lot of that now going on Yeah, a lot of it. it's a lot more open now, which is, yeah. which is great. Um, okay. Another quote for you. So uh, we were a mere four hours into hell week and we were lying in the surf zone, arms linked, feet toward the beach, 
we shivered uncontrollably in our wonderful human chain of miserable convulsions. <laughs> the instructors had ordered a round of rocking chairs. I gasped violently as my head reemerged from the icy froth of the 55 degree surf zone. A perfect cocktail of salt water and mucus streamed from my nostrils and down onto my lips and chin. My sinuses and my eyes burned from being constantly purged by the Pacific Ocean and the most unimaginably morose feeling had swept over me. This incomprehensible pain was going to last 24 hours a day until Friday afternoon. And it would only get worse as the week went on. Light at the end of the tunnel, not even a tiny effing glimmer. In that moment, I quickly learned a fabulously simple solution. What was your solution? Do you remember? Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, just just give up. Don't fight it. And, and I, I really do. This is authentic. I remember this moment where we were laying there, and I was kind of looking up to the the, the white condo high rise towers that loom over the beach between the special uh, warfare center and the, the hotel Dell there on Coronado, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I just couldn't. I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that was obviously we knew this was coming. And the interesting thing about Hell Week is the class reports to the classroom on Sunday morning. You know, it's probably going to happen in the late afternoon, early evening at some point, but they don't tell you when Hell Week. It's not like, well, it's 730. We're breaking. We're doing breakout. <laughs> they do that on purpose because it's like the anxiety is just eating away at the core of your soul. It's this weird paradox because, you know, it's going to be possibly one of the worst weeks of your life but critical for your journey. But at the same time, you also just want to get it started. You just want to get it started and get it over with as quickly as possible. And then eventually, you know, breakout happens. And uh, I remember uh, our class leader, the highest ranking officer in our class, he read aloud to us the St. Christmas Day speech from William Shakespeare's Henry V, you know, as one of his methods of, of, uh, of motivating us. And he read aloud those famed lines, you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And uh, John passed away four days later. Uh, he drowned in the pool, suffering from pulmonary edema, exacerbated by the pneumonia he had had for, for three days. And obviously going into that, we didn't know that that would be one of the outcomes, which is interestingly unique. It doesn't happen ever. I mean, that, that type of thing doesn't happen all that often. And uh, I just remember in that moment that there was no other solution uh, uh, to navigate what was going to be such an arduous crucible than accepting it, just leaning into it, you know, and in, in, in a way, not again, not to sound like I'm trying to be hardcore macho, but wanting, wanting more. So setting my expectations for the absolute worst and then hopefully being pleasantly surprised when it's almost horrible, but not as horrible as you want. Kind of going back to the, the forward David Goggins did uh, to one of my mentees where he was telling him, he's like, pray for it to be the worst hell week you've ever had. Pray for it to be the worst hell week any class has ever had. For it to be cold, to be rainy. Pray to God that he's trying to break you every, you know, every minute. And I'm summarizing. He used more colorful language uh, than I just did. But uh, it, it was some variation of that where I realized that, again, going back to what's in your control and what's not, I was in it. There was no turning back. There was only one outcome that was going to be acceptable, and that was completion outside of snapping my leg in half or breaking my neck uh, or drowning, uh, which, you know, those things happen, obviously. But outside of those elements, focus on what's in your control. What's on your control is right here, right now, taking it evolution by evolution by evolution. You know, and guys would tell you that had been through it or the, the kinder instructors would say, 
don't worry about what's happening tomorrow. Focus on this evolution, focusing on make it to lunch. In those evolutions in the afternoon, make it to dinner, make it through the night, make it to the sunrise. Just those little kind of eat the elephant one bite at a time helps you compartmentalize in a healthy way. So that you, because if you try to mentally consume everything that you think is going to happen in that week, your, your brain would explode. <laughs> You'd be like, you know what? <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, you know, and, you know, you talk about, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just what was going on there, you know, as you were starting Hell Week, you know, laying there in the surf, knowing that this is not going to end for like five days, it's going to be nonstop. But like, you know, you went in there, um, you know, you, you mentioned that your class uh, endured Hell Week in the winter when when the, the, the water temperatures in Coronado uh, can be in the 50s. And you, you say the, the you know, the uh, the mind, the mind fuck uh, of being freezing cold and soaking wet 24 hours a day is what drives most students to throw in the towel. In fact, you talk about how 50 percent of the class by the time you even get to hell week has already quit and that you were going into it and you said you had a hairline fracture in your left elbow that was causing severe swelling. Uh, you had overuse injuries to the, uh, ilio, what's that? Iliotibial IT bands. bands. Yeah. Iliotibial bands. Yeah. In both, in both, in both legs <clears throat> yeah. and a, and a flesh eating bacteria eating away at your, at uh, your right calf. So, the icing on the cake, <laughs> icing on the cake. And then, and then the very sad story about your class leader, John, um, yeah. who, you know, in the book, you talk about what an incredible, uh, incredibly positive, inspirational guy this was, uh, and how he would inspire you guys with, with, with passages, for instance, from Shakespeare. And then he ends up dying, uh, uh, drowning in a pool during hell week. So, I mean, you know, you talk about what, you know, going into what, you know, you talk about ap such an aptly named week, hell week, and what you have to go through to, you know, in that, in that crucible that, that tests everyone. And then you talk about just give in, right. You, you know, you mentioned this, this concept of just, just give in. And um, it's, it's interesting because you go into it with a culture that has kind of, and you say this is counterintuitive to embrace the suck, right? But um, it's it's almost like we're supposed to grit our teeth and bear it, right? As opposed to no, just just give into it, and, yeah. and it, right. So it's which are which are seem like the same thing, but they're actually two different two right. two different mindsets. It's it's subtle, but they're those are two different approaches to to adversity. Completely, completely. Yeah. So I think it's a very powerful uh, piece of advice. Uh, and you talk about it more in the book, which is, which is great. Um, okay. So how about this? Um, you know, you talk about this, um, which is this concept of accept and forgive, holding on to hatred and resentment for other, for ourselves or others only poisons you. Now, I, what I want to say about that is, um, you know, others would say it drives you, Right. Take that hate. That hate is right, and 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 you know, bottle up inside and let that be the fuel. That, but you you right. talk about something again, a little bit different, a different concept. Um, can you elaborate on your perspective here? 
about this concept of sure. It kind of goes into some of the the suffering practices that I'm talking about. Again, the book's not meant to be, you know, uh, this macho approach to just swallowing down pain and suffering and putting it in the box because we all know that that's not a realistic, healthy way to approach life in general, Mm -hmm. and will only exacerbate any types of problems uh, that any of us face. But the, the accepting and forgiving, you know, when I was writing about that, I wasn't thinking so much about my, you know, military career, although you want to cling to hatred for the terrorist who killed your teammate, or, you know, the things that, you know, for your hatred for yourself, uh, for the things, I call it the layers of guilt, you know, the things you did, the things you didn't do, the people you couldn't save, uh, the things you, you know, you saw when it comes to non-combatants, but also just in life in general, when I transitioned out, I've been, you know, I've been, you know, this isn't a sob story, but I've been a a full-time single parent, like not just a single parent, a full-time single parent to a toddler for several years while trying to build two businesses. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, I'll spare the, the, the nuances, but for a dad to be a single parent in California, things have to have gone south on the other side <laughs> pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so, you know, but then again, also, and for many years, I clung to just extreme hatred and resentment for not just putting me in that position, but for more, more importantly, of course, as parents, we think about our children and putting our children in adverse situations. So, but again, of course, over time, we realized that you can only cling to those things for so long, but before it starts to eat away at your soul and before it starts to have such a detrimental long-term adverse effect on you that doesn't necessarily have to happen if we can move more quickly towards the acceptance piece. And then of course the forgiveness, forgiveness for others, but sometimes it's more about forgiveness for ourselves. I know that uh, intimately, you know, has a direct correlation between our our military veterans and special operators and and just the nuances of the job itself. Oftentimes it's, it's uh, about being intentional and getting help, but also finding ways to, uh, to forgive yourself first. It's hard to forgive others and move on into, you know, into that sort of mindset, creating that narrative around forgiveness and adversity until you can, you know, forgive yourself, you know, for, mm-hmm. for the, the mistakes uh, and the, the shortcomings or the, you know, the things that we do that aren't so great that we're not so proud of. Yeah, powerful, powerful advice. Um, so let's talk about, I think this kind of segues for me, or let's talk about values. Because there's a great chapter in the book entitled, Oh, and maybe your values are all wrong. Right? <laughs> um, so I'll quote you. Um, if our values don't align with what we want out of life, the things that really matter, then we face far greater challenges than when they do. Sometimes our perspective is skewed. We chase the wrong dreams and faulty aspirations that leave us empty, void, and unfulfilled. Uh, sorry. Uh, that leave us empty and unfulfilled. So how does one choose the right values? It's interesting. This kind of goes back to my inspiration for the book that uh, has a lot to do with the work we do with organizations. So if you think about it, if, if high-performing business organizations have a solid set of core values and supporting behaviors and the associated accountability mechanisms to achieve high performance, same thing with sports teams, you know, special operations organizations like the SEAL ethos, um, which essentially is our sort of mission, vision, values, and culture manifesto all kind of wrapped up into one, one piece. Then why wouldn't we do that for ourselves or our families? Uh, you know, why not have a, a team charter for your family? Why not have a set of core values for yourself or, or if you're in a family, you know, for your family setting that 
in a perfect world, core values should be the guiding principles uh, behind which we make all decisions, uh, personally, professionally, the relationships we're in, the, the, the people or organizations we partner with, or you know, our clients and customers from a, a business standpoint. Uh, in, in theory, core values should drive everything. And, and if, they, if they're authentic, uh, and they've been designed also to align people towards achieving common goals, then that should be your charter and, and, your, um, and your, your lane markers, so to speak, um, uh, towards achieving whatever desired outcome you're trying to accomplish in, in life and work. And so I thought it'd be interesting in a book like this to have a, ch a chapter, not just about the importance of values and what happens when we fall short of those values or stray from those values, of course, which we all do because we're human, but also, you know, what are the potential positive benefits of taking a very uh, strategic approach into identifying what those values are, identifying, you know, the behaviors you expect of yourselves and others associated with those values and how you're going to hold yourself accountable and not just thinking about it while you're swimming or on a run or on a bike ride, but documenting it, putting it on paper, putting it in a Google doc, tattooing it on the back of your eyelids if necessary. And then thinking about it a lot, talking about it a lot, celebrating wins, in your life or your work associated with those values or with the team. You know, we talk a lot about that with, with you know, our, the clients we work with is, you know, if you're going to navigate change in an organization or navigate change with COVID <laughs> or other <laughs> situations, then celebrating wins is important. Uh, obviously learning from the losses and shortcomings is important, but if you're gonna use values as a, as a guiding light towards, uh, you know, navigating that meandering path, then you have to talk about them all the time. You have to use them as a tool uh, to not just make decisions, but then learn from them. When you fall short, well, we didn't meet that objective. How do we possibly lose sight of our values associated with not achieving that goal? Or celebrating a win. We crushed that project, or we landed the big client, or you know, our family has you know, successfully navigated you know, a global pandemic, and we feel like we're coming out of the other side. Well, look back at the values. How did our family core values, or how did my individual core values help me successfully um, overcome you know those obstacles and then if you if you do that with intention enough it becomes you know habitual and so those values then become more and more authentic and you can use them to you know navigate change um, more successfully than when we don't have a set of principles that uh, help guide us this is really interesting because it's kind of i mean it's kind of the opposite of what a lot of people do which is they choose their goals and then they discard whatever values or principles get in the way of, of reaching that, that objective. But by the same token, you know, it's, it's, you know, uh, hit that target or bust, right. That, 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 that's it. And whatever it takes to get there. Uh, and you, you actually also quote, um, in the book, James Clear, um, American author, entrepreneur, world famous photographer, um, who says making better choices is often a matter of choosing better constraints. Yeah, I love that. Wow. Uh, yeah, by, by, by limiting your options to those that fit your values, you're taking an important step to ensuring that your behavior matches your beliefs. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it kind of goes into you know, what we were talking about a minute ago. It's like, you know, when, if you're authentically designing specific core values, uh, then uh, in a perfect world, uh, all your decisions should, should associate with those. But it also goes into what he said about, you know, being intentional in putting certain constraints on your life, limiting your choices. That helps you also navigate temptation and the shiny objects and all the opportunities that are out there, especially in this world of constant disruption and communication 
where we think, well, that's a great idea that we, and the teams are called the good idea fairy. Well, there, there is such a thing as bad ideas <laughs> so, and limiting your constraints uh, and being intentional in that, in, in that effort uh, helps you eliminate uh, those unnecessary distractions, the unnecessary temptation, all the things like we talked about with, you know, these young men who are focused on becoming a SEAL operator, uh, the ones who are successful, they put really, really healthy constraints on their life and eliminate everything else. Uh, so it, uh, and then uh, of course, making sure those lane markers, like I said, uh, are associated with you know, what your values are and then, uh, you know, focusing on that alone and being intentional on how you, um, remove, uh, the distractions and oftentimes the people, you know, from our lives that either don't wish us well, uh, the haters or even, you know, longtime friends who, have grown apart uh, and will, you know, will stand in your way or holding you back. We all have to do that, you know, especially as you get older and you have a family and you have a career, you know, we don't have time to have like, you know, 50 really good friends. You know, it's just most people I know, especially people who I, you know, talk to or have been mentors of mine, they have a close connection of maybe like five really good friends uh, who are actual friends, not acquaintances, but, but friends, mentors, peers that they can lean on in the most adverse times. Uh, and, and that social connectivity is important for all of us. You know, you can only achieve so much uh, on your own, you know, without, you know, trusted you know, peers and mentors and friends that can help, uh, you know, push you, push you down that path. But I, I love what James Clear said about, you know, putting the right constraints. You know, I, it's just a phenomenal uh, quote that he said. And it's so simple, but most of us just kind of suck at doing that consistently. Big time. Um, you, I mean, look, you get into a fair bit of, you know, you, you, you bring a lot of examples from uh, your time in the SEALs. You also get into a fair bit of psychology uh, in the book as well. Uh, and you, you also draw upon the stories of individuals that have made it through intense and arduous situations. Um, you know, you talk about uh, Goggins, of course, in, you know, a friend of yours and in, and in your, in your class, um, uh, in the, in, in the chapter entitled, do something that sucks every day, which is a quote from Goggins. Um, you share a very powerful view on how to deal with stress. So you, your perspective, uh, <clears throat> is on how positive a force pressure and stress can be in your life. Can you elaborate on that concept of stress as something we should embrace? Uh, sure. And, and a lot of this is, uh, is, you know, one of the great core components of success is to surround yourself with people much smarter than you. And then you just take credit for all their work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but a lot of the people on our team are, you know, PhDs in behavioral psychology and, and organizational uh, excellence and things like that. And, um, you know, there's, there's a, you know, a ton of research out there that shows, you know, obviously a large abundance just with the, the detrimental impacts of anxiety and stress and, all these tools and resources and health, healthy habits we can do to eliminate it. But at the same time, you know, from a human defense mechanism and developmental standpoint, stress and anxiety aren't just inevitable, but they have a really positive impact on how we grow and how we develop and how we build, you know, grit and mental fortitude, kind of going back to the beginning of the book and the beginning of the conversation. If, if you're only unlucky enough to never experience any real true adversity, you've crippled yourself or someone has crippled you for, for life as an adult uh, in, in the real world. And so it, um, it really goes into understanding how to navigate stress and anxiety in, in a healthy way. 
but not shying away from it, knowing that it's inevitable. It's going to be part of your life professionally and personally, and not always finding ways to eliminate it, but leaning into it a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, you even talk about how the body's stress response was not designed to kill us. Uh, in fact, right. right. The evolutionary goal of the stress response was to help boost the body and mind into enhanced functioning. Um, <clears throat> And that, you know, you, you mentioned that and immediately, you know what I'm, th I'm thinking Wim Hof, right? I, I, I don't know if uh, you're familiar, you're smiling. So, you know, perhaps you're, you're familiar with him, with yeah. Wim Hof, but you know, the extreme, uh, the Dutch extreme athlete who, uh, you know, sits in freezing ice cold baths for two hours and climbs uh, Everest in his shorts, <laughs> right? But, but he proved in a scientific experiment that in yeah. fact, the stress response if you activate it on purpose, uh, those stress chemicals actually can heal the body, which is yeah. again, all very counterintuitive. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, but it, it's, it's finding ways to tap into that, which is, uh, you know, which isn't easy, but you have to either be in or manufacture uh, those uncomfortable situations to, to, to garner, uh, to garner that. So how do you, so, okay. So how do you, how do you do, the right things, how would you advise people to do the right things that suck every day, <laughs> the, right? The, the, the philosophy around that chapter is really around, it's around goal achievement. Um, so yeah. not just engaging in things that suck just for the sake of you know, punishing yourself, but when, it, when it's associated <clears throat> with achieving goals that align with your values, that are within the healthy constraints that you put uh, you know, uh, in your life and your work, then identifying the, the challenges, the obstacles, the threats and blockages, the things that make you cringe, the things, the things that you're not good at yet. And that's what we teach our client, you know, our clients too, when you're talking about mental fortitude is well, I'm not good at that. Well, just add a yet on the end of that, because if you're trying to achieve a certain goal, if it's a good goal and a worthy pursuit, then it will have pain, suffering and anxiety associated with the achievement of that goal. Otherwise, Maybe it's a waste of your time. <laughs> Maybe choose a different goal. But then identifying those threats and blockages that stand in your way, labeling them, identify you know, how you typically approach those things and being intentional in how you plan to tackle those challenges. That goes into being intentional in the fine and subtle art of comfort zone expansion. Identify those things and practice those things with intention every day if, if, if need be. You know, for example, I'm a student and, and teacher of leadership. But as a leader over the years, and this is based on you know, feedback and 360 reviews and, and mentorship and, and coaching, is that one of the things that I struggle with as a leader is, um, is, is conflict avoidance. Uh, interestingly enough, on the battlefield, I'll run to the sound of gunfire. In a, in a business setting, oftentimes I've had a history of kind of avoiding the tough conversations or the employee that I have to let go or the board member who I know is going to scream at me or the customer who is probably going to cancel his contract and I'm going to get an earful before he does. Mm -hmm. I'm usually like, oh, I'm going to put that on the list for Thursday. And then Thursday comes around, I'm like, probably should reschedule that call for Tuesday <laughs> or I delegate it to someone else. No, never. Don't disregard the, the, the importance of delegation. However, in all seriousness, that's, that's something, for example, that I've tried to be intentional in practicing. You know, tackling challenges head on, having a difficult conversations now, not tomorrow. And once you do that, obviously it's a developmental practice where A, you realize, well, I guess that wasn't that tough of a conversation. I learned a little bit from it. It wasn't that you know, scary of a board member or the client actually didn't cancel his contract. The problem was that his, you know, uh, the, the magnitude wasn't as, as, um, as big as I thought it was going to be. And he realized, okay, that wasn't that bad. I could do that again. And then I could do it again. And I could do it again. 
and then you're expanding your comfort zone in that area, check, move on to the next thing and move the goalposts and keep doing that with the things that make you uncomfortable or the things that stand in your way of achieving certain goals. And then you're, you're in that constant state of improvement. And then sometimes the things that used to seem insurmountable uh, become normal and part of your everyday life. Yeah, uh, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think you you know you talk about um, the chapters called uh, "Choose Wisely What You Suffer For," and you talk about purposeful suffering. Um, and you know, there's there's a, a healthy way to suffer, right? And and I think you're you know it could be as simple as having those hard conversations that you don't want to have. Um, they're painful. They really are. So, you know, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's great advice, but you can't suffer for any purpose without mastering self-discipline and you get into uh, self-discipline in this book and you, you have a bunch of steps that you go through uh, as you talk about how to kind of master self-discipline. And um, I wanted to ask you a question on some of them. Because, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, we talked about eliminating, you know, about, about your values, but having constraints. Uh, we talked about uh, how some of the best uh, candidates that you have mentored have had this ability to eliminate everything in their life that gets in the way of their goal. So you talked about eliminating distractions and this kind of thing. Um, but, you know, self-discipline seems like, uh, something that we often know we must control, we must get a whole, we must get our arms around, right. God forbid, God forbid, even master self-discipline. <laughs> but I mean, how does, how does one actually go about um, mastering self-discipline other than saying, okay, I know I've got to be more disciplined. That's just doesn't work. Right. So no. <laughs> how would you, how, you know, so it kind of goes, I talk a lot about the book and about having, good plan. I mean, one, you know, and the, that philosophy of eating the elephant one bite at a time, you know, you're not going to, you know, master self-discipline in areas where you typically, you know, err on the side of weakness by just diving headfirst, you know, and, uh, you know, while, and while it's good and admirable to be like, you know, I'm going cold Turkey and I'm going to stop doing this, or I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to develop this great fitness regimen. I'm starting today. Well, if it's if it's a far cry from anything you're used to doing, typically you're going to be more successful if you dial it back a little bit and uh, and just take it one step at a time, small incremental daily decisions, uh, and because you're going to build more confidence that way. That's why you know I joke in the book about how New Year's resolutions and this newfound discipline is for losers. You know, you can I I love the time bound. Any goal must be concise, measurable, and time bound. But don't call it a New Year's resolution. <laughs> studies show that come February 15th, you, you will have not done any of that shit. Um, but in all seriousness, it, it's really about making lifestyle choices and making lasting change in yourself or in a team and an organization. Uh, you know, most lasting change, you know, most change initiatives, for example, I read about this in my first book in an individual or a team, uh, fail or fall short of meeting their intended objective because, you know, you're starting at step seven of 10, as opposed to starting at step one and creating that foundational mindset shift, changing the narrative, being intentional in what you, what you want to accomplish and you know, journaling about that, developing a plan, putting it on paper, uh, running that plan by trusted friends or mentors, red team that plan, poke holes in it, 
and then and then being intentional uh, every day in the steps you're going to take to build self-discipline towards achieving that goal or eating cleaner or improving your fitness regimen or uh, building your business or becoming a better leader or a better spouse or a better parent. Uh, don't try to do it all at once. Don't you be like, you know, it, it's great because we all, we've all been through that. We're like, you know, you want to gut punch yourself and you're like, I am changing right now, everything. Right. Total right. I, you know, while that's great, you know, I encourage uh, people because I've failed miserably at this in the past. Take it, take it one step at a time. <laughs> Break the big goal into bite-sized chunks and therefore they're going to be more achievable, more measurable, and you'll build confidence along that path more quickly because you're less likely to fall short. So you also talk about, and again, I, I implore everyone to read the book to kind of look at these, you know, there's a lot going on there, but also when it comes to self-discipline, you've lay out these steps. You've mentioned some of them. One that I found really powerful was uh, you talk about, I think it's step six, change your perception about willpower, change your perception about willpower. You, you say that in short, our internal conceptions about willpower and self-control can determine how disciplined we are. How, how so? Because you know, that I think is, Definitely something that a lot of people fall, fall short on. It's that whole concept of willpower. They go and they say, I don't have any willpower. Yeah, it's interesting because there's two sort of seemingly conflicting points I talk about in the book around willpower, where some research shows that, well, willpower is uh, depletes over time or throughout the day. If you exhibit all your willpower at work, then you might be you know, short and, and snippy with your wife and kids when you get home because you're, you're frustrated and you're exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically. Whereas, you know, there's, you know, expanding research on the fact that willpower is like your resilience muscles. You can train willpower, you can train resilience, you can train mental fortitude into yourself. But again, going back to what we talked about by making small incremental decisions and choices uh, so that you can slowly develop that willpower and mental strength over time, as opposed to just trying to decide, I'm going to be much more disciplined starting right now and, and do all these great things. Whereas, you know, your willpower muscles are more likely to develop just like in any fitness regimen. Uh, if you have a very solid strategic plan and you, and you in, engage in that path purposefully, uh, as opposed to just trying to do it all at once. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's fascinating <laughs> to think that you can actually um, not only build resilience, but, you know, willpower isn't something you have to be born with that you can actually, um, you could actually build it over time like a muscle. Uh, and then, yeah, you talk, you know, you also get into, I think there's, um, uh, a, a technique that psychologists use called, uh, implementation intention. I mean, you know, there's, there's cool stuff in there in, in the yeah. book that kind of gets into it, but throughout the book, you, you actually, so here's another big theme for me in, in the book. So resilience was one of them. I love this idea of control. Um, but throughout the book, you often point out the significance of not living a life filled with regrets. And I'll quote you here. One of my favorite poems is all about living a life of value, knowing your core values and living by them every day. The poem is titled Death Song, and it was written by Tecumseh. The poem is widely shared in the naval special warfare community and in many ways captures our values and how we approach life and work. As Tecumseh said, be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death, 
So they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. The point is, we're all going to have to sing our death song someday. What will the words of your song be? And, you know, I mean, it, 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 that's a powerful poem. There's more to it uh, as well. But where did this notion of living a life of no regrets come from? Because you definitely mentioned this in a number of areas in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, where it really that- came from, you know, I wanted to end the book with, with something powerful that ties all together. So, you know, the final chapter is titled, We're All Gonna Die, So Get Off Your Ass and Execute. <laughs> And a lot of the inspiration of that chapter really comes from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where the second habit is thinking, he says thinking with the end in mind, but I say thinking and behaving and planning with the end in mind and managing that list of life regrets starting today. We do have a very significant impact on the things that we do not want to regret uh, when that inevitable day when this short life comes to an end. So it's, it behooves us to start managing that list now when it comes to, and I end the chapter with a, a framework that people can print out or fill out when, you know, what do I not want to regret when it comes to family, faith, love, relationships, work, giving back, you know, and it goes on and on. And it's meant to be a tool for the user to fill that out now and start behaving that way, start interacting that way with relationships, have those difficult conversations, apologize more, say, I love you more, make better decisions when it comes to life and work. Because, you know, there's going to be certain things, of course, when this life comes to an end, like you are going to regret certain things, that's inevitable. But be intentional in thinking with the end in mind. Developing your own personal exit strategy is a phenomenal way to plan for your life. Just like in business, well, oftentimes a business, especially if there's some defined exit, you start with the exit strategy in mind, then you build the business backwards from there. Just like a good mission plan, so to speak. You know your desired outcome, let's work backwards to build you know, the necessary actions, the resources, identifying the threats and blockages and, you know, and the contingencies that we're going to need to achieve that mission, achieve that desired outcome or achieve that exit strategy. Start planning for that now. Yeah, I I think that's a perfect, that that's a perfect way to kind of wind down uh, the podcast. I mean, you've been, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. Uh, Brent, for you know, for for being here with I've us, got, I've sure. got a newborn in there, so I'm happy to hang out with you in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, um, you know. I guess you know you talk. You know, throughout the book, you give these these opportunities for the reader to kind of exercise that um, that concept of okay, let yeah, it, it's a great concept. Um, you know, choosing the right values but here's how you do it. And you actually take the reader through, Hey, you know, here's what you need to do. And so you have an exercise in there, but as well at the end of the book, as you said, you have that chart that you put in there. I've never seen that before. Right. That that chart that you said um, is, you know, on the left side, it lists when it comes to this part of my life, right. You know, you've got those areas listed, family, health, my purpose, and on the right side of the checklist is that corresponding spa- uh, space for I never want to regret. So when it comes to my health, I never want to regret what? Boom, 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 boom. And I was looking at that chart and I'm thinking, you know, that's if you actually fill that out. I mean, that's that's very powerful. Um, have, have you filled it out? 
I, I have actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I was like, I should probably start using some of these tools. No, I'm kidding. It, it, but, <laughs> but most of the tools to your point saying, yeah, I've never seen that before. It, you know, it's something that that's not a tool, you know, we use in my company or something I've seen. It's just, it seemed like an impactful mental model to, to close the book out with. And, you know, I, I say, here's a tool. You can expand on these different categories. You know, now it's on you to, to how you want to use it. Um, it, it, it is, like you said, a, a powerful and very impactful mental process to go through. Because it, and it's not as easy as you think it is in this simple chart. You know, when it comes to, you know, family, what do I not want to regret? There's, I mean, gosh, I needed like five extra pieces of paper <laughs> you know, when you really start thinking about it. But then if, you, but if you're authentic and writing those things down or journaling them or creating that, that list, then the hard part comes. Then the hard part comes in changing your behavior, improving this, improving that, eliminating certain things from your life, uh, putting better constraints in place so that you can live with intention to not have those regrets. So that's the hard part. You know, the, the planning part in the list is easy. It's about the execution that's usually the challenge. <laughs> Powerful stuff, Brent. Powerful stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a, it, it really is a, a, a fascinating book. It's a great read. You got some great stories in there about your time in the SEALs. You got some incredible advice in there from your experience, uh, you know, with, the, with your company and with training clients. Uh, you got psychology in there. It is well worth the time to... Yep read that book and, and actually use it. I'm taking some great lessons away. I wanted to thank you so much for doing the show and ask where can our, where can our readers uh, uh, and our, excuse me, our listeners, I'm wrapped up in your book. Where can our listeners um, learn more about you and about the work that you're doing? Sure. Uh, thank you, Lawrence. No, it's been a phenomenal conversation. I hope we do this again sometime. But uh, uh, our company website's takingpointleadership.com. Obviously, that's our corporate website with our consultative services. Uh, I also have a Forbes leadership column, uh, as you mentioned before. Uh, so if you just look up Forbes, Brent Gleason, or some keyword variation of that, you'll, you'll find my author page. It has hundreds of articles that I've written over the past seven years around leadership and behavioral science and organizational excellence. And uh, I'm on social media on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Brent underscore Gleason and on Twitter as well. The book itself, of course, available on all online retailers, the Amazons and Barnes Nobles of the world. It's on Audible as well. And in your brick and mortar bookstores, if anybody remembers those and your local bookstores as well. Brick and mortar bookstore. What's that? Yeah, it's, it's a thing still. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, fantastic. Uh, Brent, absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for being on the Alpha Human Podcast. Wish you tremendous success. Uh, I love reading your stuff and uh, already looking forward to the next book. So uh, <laughs> keep my on. daughter wants me to do a kid's version of Embrace the Suck. That's actually, actually a great idea. Yeah, uh, I've had a few people say that. <laughs> great idea, great idea. Well, uh, God bless, man. And thank you for your service. God bless you. Appreciate you, man. And uh, keep in touch. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. Take care.